Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Damon, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast, mate. Yeah, you're very welcome, Owen. Nice to be here. Yeah, we um, we got here in the end. We're recording remotely in Melbourne. It's always a pleasure to chat, mate. So today we're going to talk about Moat. That's the the Moat ETF, M-O-A-T, for those of you who like ticker codes. And we're talking about this ETF. It's one that I own, so full disclosure there. I've recommended it in the past and I, I still own it. And I'm pleased to see it doing so well over the last, say, three to four years. So very relevant conversation for us today. We often talk about on this podcast, we talk about, you know, moats in the, I guess, a qualitative sense, how we find them. We tend to kind of scratch the surface on how to measure them. But this ETF effectively has some analyst research that goes into finding companies with wide moats, which I'll get you to explain in just a moment, and combines that with valuations. So you get the valuation factor and you also get the quality factor. So maybe, mate, I'll throw it over to you first. Can you just explain at a high level what the moat ETF does? And then what a wide moat is. Yeah, sure. So so we run the moat ETF, which is a Vanek Vectors Morningstar wide moat ETF. It's actually one of our biggest funds globally. It's one of my favorites as well. So it's almost $10 billion funds under management. Been in the US since 2012. We've had it in Australia since 2005. What it provides exposure to is Morningstar wide moat rated companies that are attractively priced. And so it's a very, very different type of ETF strategy. So your, your listeners will be certainly familiar if you're if you're looking at US equities with something like an S&P 500, which is blanket exposure to the 500 biggest companies. Moat goes considerably further in terms of its screening. It leverages uh, Morningstar's deep equity research capability. So they've got hundreds of analysts globally, and there's various facets to their, their research, the, the moat ratings being one, the, the valuations um, being another. And so at a high level, Morningstar's in, integrated this moat methodology into their equity research at a global level, going back north of 15 years now. And so every stock that they cover across the globe gets a moat rating. It's wide moat, narrow moat, no moat. And the whole concept is, if you think of a moat being a, like protecting a castle, you draw the parallels. That's the analogy. It's, it's all about trying to find companies that have got very, very strong barriers to entry, competitive advantages. They have to be sustainable, like persistent competitive advantages that will last for a, for a very long time as well. So it's a, in short, to get that gold standard wide moat rating, you have to be a really solid type of business. So that's the concept of, of moat in a, in a nutshell. Like I said, and we might go, go into this in more detail, there's two components to the, to the actual strategy. One is identifying those wide moat rated companies the other is making sure you're not overpaying for them as well. Valuations change at times. So we're, we're leveraging through this index strategy, Morningstar's discipline around valuations as well. Yeah, we talk a lot about, we speak to a lot of active managers on the show. A lot of you know investors I know are active fund managers, right? Um, I'm an active investor myself. And then on the other side, we also talk to a lot of ETF providers such as yourselves and others that do 
purely passive, right? And this, the, what I like about this is other than it being a listed structure, so you can quickly, you know, it's, it's liquid, you can get in and out. The other thing that I really like is you basically get basically an active strategy for pretty much a passive price in terms of the fee point, 0.49% is the, the management fee on this one. So some of the stuff that I like about it, obviously I, I have done a lot of reading on the Morningstar methodology over the years. And what I really like about it is it's kind of taken the principles of like Buffett and everyone like that. And it's kind of fed it into this model that allows it to look at it from you know discounted cash flow analysis, if that's what the analysts are using, as well as that really strong qualitative overlay to try and identify things like switching costs, network effects, you know, economies of scale, all those things that lead to wider moats over time. And one of the things that I was actually digging up in, in anticipation of this, Damon, is I went back, I think it's a 2017 paper from Morningstar that you guys have on your website, and it shows the difference between wide moat, narrow moat, and no moat companies from a sample size of, say, 1,400 companies in the US. And it's got the return on invested capital for a rolling three-year period across those three groups. And the wide moat companies get 13 point, achieve 13.5% return on invested capital over trailing three years. Narrow moat, 9.7%, and um, no moat companies, 4.8%. And for those of you who don't know what that is effectively telling you, typically what we do is we compare the return on invested capital to the cost of capital. So what we get on the capital versus what it costs us to get that capital. And that's how you effectively get companies that outperform um, over the long term anyhow, because they can invest their money for, for a greater return than it costs them. Damon, one of the things that's interesting about the Moat ETF in particular is how the portfolio is constructed and pieced together. Can you explain, I guess, why it is what it is, how many companies are in the portfolio, all those types of things, the questions people might normally ask? Yeah, sure. So it, it is an index. So there is a, it's a systematic process with a quarterly rebalance. But, but like you said, like you drew the analogy between moat and, and an active strategy, it's a very, very different index. And in some respects, I think the reason it has achieved that outperformance at alpha is because of the, the discipline that having a systematic approach imposes, which is you don't fall in love with a stock. If it meets the, if it meets the criteria, if it's a wide moat rated company and it's, and it's looking cheap, then it's in. And, and if it's not, it, it's out. So the, the index is between 40 and 80 stocks. So at the moment, there's 48 companies in most. How it arrives at that, in a nutshell, is that the broad US equity market is that that, that Morningstar covers, that's the universe. So there's a, around 1,400 stocks in that, in that universe. Of those 1,400 companies, typically there has been around 140 Wide moat rated companies. Now, it, it is, it's coincidental. It's not any that it's amounting to 10%. It's not a targeted top 10% that it's everything. But so it, it really does remove a lot of that investable universe. So about 90%. So only 140 stocks are, are wide moated, uh, wide moat rated. How the index then gets constructed is Morningstar creates two 40 stock baskets. So basket number one that will re rebalance every six months. Basket number two, that will rebalance every six months, but in alternating quarters. So take basket one, it will be the 40 cheapest wide moat rated stocks in, in that quarter. The next quarter, the same process runs, but on over basket number two. Let's say that just coincidentally, it was the exact same 40 stocks, which would be incredibly unlikely given valuations are changing all the time and the, and the equity research, are, so moat ratings are, do, do change from time to time as well. 
But if you had the exact same stocks, you'd have 40 in the portfolio. If in, in that second basket, if there was no overlap, you'd have effectively 40 new stocks. That would be 40 plus 40 and 80 stocks. So generally speaking, you'd expect around probably around that 50 or 60 mark. That has been the historical average in there. The other important thing is it's equally weighted then. So unlike, unlike the, 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 the things which represent, so by things, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, um, and, and, and Microsoft, uh, so the, which are roughly a quarter of the S&P 500 nowadays, if, if some of those stocks make it into mode, which, well, some of them are in there at the moment, um, there's actually some really interesting kind of recent additions as well, but if they go in there, they will have a very a much smaller share. You're not going to end up with an enormous tilt just to those stocks just because they're they're big by market capitalization. So, really, like in, in short, it's it's a fairly high conviction portfolio between forty and eighty names. They have to be wide moat rated and attractively priced. Mm. One of the things, just as a side note, that I might add here is that actually um, you actually made it Australia domiciled not too long ago, which is a, a handy thing I got to say um, for Australian investors, like. You know why, like that from a tax benefit, it just makes so much sense. So one of the things, I've just got the chart right here in front of me, comparing the the ETF to the IBV, the um, S&P 500 Aussie dollar ETF, how, how did it perform during, say, a drawdown? Because one of the things that I looked at was like downside capture when I was recommending it was basically how much downside protection can it provide relative to the broader market? And when does it outperform, I guess, is the other question. Like we talked on a phone call not long ago about like idiosyncratic risk and return here. When do you expect it to perform and how do you expect it to perform in downturns? Yeah, it's so historically in downturns, so the it does well. It's a long-only equity strategy. So if the market's getting absolutely hammered, most not going to be uh, uh, posting positive returns. It's only owning, it's a, it's a stock portfolio, as you know, as well. But gen, generally speaking, if you kind of, if you, if you think about the, the building blocks of mode, those wide boat rated companies, they they get that rating because they're generally very good businesses. To go into the portfolio in the first place, you're generally at a very attractively priced level as well. So that, that affords moat during most big market corrections some some protection. So so over the history of the fund, which is nine and a bit years now, the history of the index, which is actually it's actually north of twelve years that it has been a live index from from Morningstar. So it actually did did cover that uh, GFC type of period as, as as well. Yeah, those periods of market dislocation, it generally does does very well. So in terms of how it does in different environments, it's not a persistent, and this this is one of the things I really like about the moat strategy. And uh, and while it is an index strategy, I'm not going to argue with people when they when they say, look, there's there's parallels with an active strategy here. And and what I'm talking about is there's been a lot of talk about growth versus value as a style. So all, all the growthy types of names in recent years have shot the lights out. The tech companies have done extremely well. So if you've got a growth style over the last five plus years, you've outperformed. And it's been a very, very difficult market environment for value managers because they've just continued on looking at looking at looking at markets scratching their heads, going, how are these big tech businesses getting more and more expensive and why are people just throwing money out of them at them and eventually be, will be right. And and in the last six months, so since la- late last year, there has been quite a pronounced value rotation. As well, so the value names have done extremely well. I, I put that in the like as the backdrop to, to Moat in that Moat has been around for nine years. So since inception, 
it has outperformed the S&P 500 by about 2% per annum after fees. Over the last five years, it's about 2.1% per annum ahead of the S&P 500. So people would agree that kind of time frame has been a, a time frame that's been very, very fruitful for growth-focused funds. In the six months through to end of May, it was 5%, close to 5% ahead of the S&P 500. So in that period where a value, a big value rotation was, was on, might also did very well. And so I think it's too, too binary just to say, look, there's growth elements, there's value elements. Moat is actual evidence that, hey, you get a good process right, you own good, good companies and you own them when they're attractively priced and you can do well through various environments. That's, and I think that's a really, really important thing to note. So it, does, it doesn't have a strong value tilt, doesn't have a strong growth tilt. There'll be periods where it, where it may, may do. But when we do, when our investment team does the kind of the attribution on like the factor, what, what, what factors are driving the returns, it's not a pronounced factor ETF. It's, it looks as, as you would expect a very good active fund to be, which is it's about the stock selection. It's, that's what's, what's driving the actual returns, the outperformance in the, in, in the case of most, but forgetting outperformance, the, the very different performance between it and the standard benchmark is it comes down to the stock selection. Yeah, I was just going to say kind of the evolution of systematic investing, in my opinion, is taking a more qualitative approach to like embedding that somehow in the investment process. And just for those people who don't understand what Damon's talking about, he talks about attribution is effectively, if you have a, a fund, you can run it through something uh, like fact set. And you can determine where the kind of gains or, or where the losses have come from in your strategy based on typically a four-factor analysis, like um, small, minus, large, uh, momentum factors, value factors based on like ratios, like price to book, price to earnings, whatever, and growth factors as well. So basically what we're talking about here is how do we expect an ETF performer, portfolio of stocks like Moat in certain environments based on that factor analysis. And so it's interesting that it's kind of neutral to those factors, right? Because a lot of ETFs target those factors so that advisors can collate a portfolio to perform in certain environments, like in a rising rates environment or in rising inflation environment, even you might go for something, you know, that's kind of shown in the past to be kind of, I guess, accommodative to that. How about then in terms of, so if we think about that from a, from an advisor's perspective, and even from an, you know, like an investor's perspective, say like me, I own Moat, right? Where do you see, when you speak to advisors, where do you see them allocating this uh, in a portfolio? Because I imagine a lot of them are you know, thinking, oh, well, IVV is pretty low cost. Or like, I'm just using that as an example. You could select any ETF. I'm just thinking like, where would you allocate it um, in the bucket? Like tactical? Is it more of a you know, long-term strategic asset allocation decision? Where are people putting this thing? We see it being utilised. Uh, in, in both ways. So I'll, I'll give uh, so in terms of that, I guess that the, the tactical replacement of a, of a of say an S and P five hundred ETF that that's become more and more prominent as a result of markets hitting all time highs. So we, like we're we're at the moment sitting in but bizarrely in Melbourne, not in lockdown when the rest of the country is, and there's an, an extraordinarily low interest rates have spurred on markets and, and markets and a huge amount of, I guess, financial risk potentially in the system because of a very uh, unconventional stimulus at a global level now. And with that as the backdrop and with the mega cap tech names, so those, uh, those FANG stocks continuing to hit all-time highs and being the main driver of markets, we do see a, a financial advisors in particular looking at going, well, 
I'm getting a little bit uncomfortable with just a complete blanket exposure to the to the market. Maybe maybe now is the time to actually think about something that has a bit more smarts to it, has a bit more, I guess, thoughtfulness to the construction, and and that's where I guess a, a moat can be that can replace a US a market cap US equity strategy with more of a focus on making sure you've got good businesses and making sure you're not overpaying for them uh, in there. So that that's that's certainly the case. Like, and we use the terminology moat is high conviction as well. It's still between 40 and 80 stocks. Given that so many Australian investors will own uh, half their portfolio in Aussie equities and do it directly and own a dozen stocks, 40 to 80 mega cap US names is still a very broad-based exposure. So there are plenty of advisors that, are, that would allocate to moat as just a strategic holding in a, as part of their international portfolio. Where I see the greatest inter- interest from, from Moat, and this is, I won't use too many cliche words <laughs> today, Owen, but I'll use the, the term disruption, actively manage funds that are charging one and a half percentage points, potentially plus performance fees to deliver results that over the long term have been pretty much subpar or subpar and after, after fees basis because of how high those fees are in the, in the first place. Strategies like Moat and other strategic beta factor-based um, strategies they're being looked at more and more as replacements to those um, to those types of uh, funds. Like like you said, 0.49% is the management cost on moat. So very low cost. It is fully transparent. You can see every single stock that's in the portfolio. You can see everything that's just come in or come out of the portfolio at the last rebalance. You can trade it on market. You can buy it on a platform or off a platform. You've got tax embedded tax efficiency with an ETF. And, and the investment strategy itself makes a lot of sense. So I think it ticks a lot of boxes and and can be utilised as a core more and more. Mm. I was just looking at the three-year rolling analytics as in from the risk perspective, as you mentioned, I guess how it performs in a portfolio and and from at least a a risk perspective, like typically what people think of, um, at least in my opinion, when they're thinking of building out that SAA is they just, if they're going to sub something in or out, they want it to be similar in risk characteristics as much as they want performance. They want a similar risk characteristics. And it's actually the moat beta against the Miski World X Australia is, I say, only zero, uh, 1.05 as at 31 May 2021. It's not actually that high, even though you say high conviction, it's not that high. No, exactly. It's, it's got comparable risk. Yeah. And, and, and historically has had yeah, lower, lower drawdowns as well. Lo- lower drawdowns, faster recovery, comparable risk at a volatility or beta level. Yeah, and and it, yeah, so it does. It, it's not something that's uh, if people are looking at, the, I guess, risk exposures in portfolios. It's not something that's increasing it over your traditional type of uh, index approach. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, it's a really interesting ETF, mate. I'm uh, like I said, I've held it for some time, so I'm talking my own book. You obviously <laughs> issue the ETF, so you, you love it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, yeah, I just I I like it because I think it's it's quite unique and it's reached scale. I think when I was first looking at the Mo ETF, just in terms of the Australian vehicle, it had about eighty million under management, but now it's about three hundred, which is great to see. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, Matt. I feel like, is there anything else you want to add on it? Like anything else that people should know? I think one one thing just <laughs> well, while I'm while I am talking so positively on it is some of the other characteristics. I love talking about some of the characteristics and some of the cool things that people don't understand when they're, especially when they think ETFs and they generally just kind of gravitate towards, oh, it's just an index. So what's there to know? It just owns everything. But it's quite a dynamic strategy. So what sits under the hood right now? 
will more than likely look quite different in 12 months' time. And, and it probably and it looks different right now than it did 12 months ago as well. So in generally speaking, the moat ratings are pretty sticky. Coca-Cola doesn't have a wide moat one moment and no moat the next. So the, the, the moat ratings are generally pretty sticky, but things do, do change. But valuations certainly change. When you look at the seesaw in markets just in recent times, and you saw a huge run-up of the tech stocks last year, and then they've actually fallen out of favour as well. So at those quarterly rebalances, and I'll just give the example. So moat has been quite underweight technology stocks tech and communication services, as those stocks have looked more attractive. And that, that's not because of the wide moat rating being miss, missed on a lot of those companies because they generally have wide moat ratings, the, the, the big end of town in terms of tech, but it has been all about valuations. And so the moat has been underweight, but they've been adding it in at the last rebalance. And, at the, and so the, the exposure to tech has actually grown by over 5% just a couple of weeks ago. And so if you look at the sector exposures of Moto over time, there's no, there's no persistency there. Its position is driven by where the best opportunities are in terms of within the wide moat rated universe of stocks from a valuation perspective. And so, yeah, as, as some of the banks have run very hard globally, they've dropped out of the index. They've been replaced by some of the big, bigger tech names that have come back into the index as well. So while it's still a little bit underweight technology, it's increased that weight as those stocks have looked cheaper. So I think that's a really kind of important thing. It does change over over time, the positioning, and we think that's really important as well. Mm. Yeah, I'm just looking at the top 10 holdings for 31 May. In the top 10, you've got, in no particular order, Wells Fargo, Alphabet, General Dynamics, Berkshire Hathaway, Yum Brands, Altria Group, Philip Morris, Raytheon, so a lot of names that people would know from totally disparate industries, you know, I've, I found it hard to put Berkshire Hathaway into any type of industry or bucket, a gig sector. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I was chatting to one of our analysts the other day about how companies they get removed from the ETF. And what I was interested in is that it's not always valuation. Sometimes, you know, you would expect it to be valuation. It's not always valuation, but, you know, at the same time, it's all about that discount to intrinsic value with the moat rating, right? So... It, can't, it, it makes sense that something would come in if it's got a better ratio or undervalued. Yeah, it's certainly. I, I couldn't think. I can't think of a high-profile example just in recent times of a of a company losing its rating or, or, or gaining the white moat rating. Um, but there certainly have been instances of that in the in the past. So uh, no, thank, thanks for uh, covering it in so much detail. Yeah, no worries, mate. And thanks for taking some time to to come on and and, and talk about the ETF. I really appreciate it. So if people wanted to find out more about the Moat ETF, including seeing everything that's inside the, the portfolio. And I know you've got a lot of white papers. Where would they go to find that stuff? So we have a lot of info up on our website, so vanek.com.au. Yeah, we have all the all the white papers, the fact sheets, the flyers. You'll see every holding in it and see the performance and all of that sort of stuff. We do have an investor line. And, and of course, we're huge advocates of advice as well. So uh, speak to your financial advisor or stockbroker uh, for, for more info. And you're based in Melbourne, right? So you, you speak to a lot of advisors down here. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So I've uh, got pretty, uh, pretty broad coverage, although I'm not traveling interstate at the moment. No, no. But if people wanted to get in contact with you, again, you'll find Damon on the, on the website or you can find him on LinkedIn and, and reach out and say g'day. So uh, I'll put all the links in the show notes to that stuff. Mate, always a pleasure. So thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Owen. 